Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Rob, for this very special collaboration with the National Portrait Gallery for the LGBTQ Plus History Month? I'm feeling incredibly proud and I really enjoyed our little chat that we had. And it was really fascinating to explore some of the heroes, uh, both of yours and mine, who mm. happen to also be in the National Portrait Gallery collection. And yes. throughout this LGBTQ Plus uh, History Month and beyond, the National Portrait Gallery are going to be sharing stories and portraits of all of those that have helped shape Britain. Amazing. Please enjoy this episode. Please support the National Portrait Gallery. You can go online and you can look up all the artists that we discuss in this week's episode and also learn more about our queer history and who's part of the collection. Yeah, and the best bit is during this lockdown, you can still stay connected with the gallery. You can follow them on social media, their Instagram and Facebook. It's at National Portrait Gallery. And um, they're also on Twitter at NPG London. And you can head to the NPG website, which is www.mpg.org.uk. Thanks, National Portrait Gallery. Thank you very much. <laughs> Hi, Rob. Hi, Russell. Look at you and your gold chain. What's that for? I'm just um, turning really bling lately. You are bling lately. It's really interesting that we are here today and you've turned bling because we are talking about the bling collection of LGBTQI plus queer artists that are in the National Portrait Gallery collection. Yeah, and you know why? Because it's LGBTQ plus History Month. Woo! Happy LGBTQI plus History Month to you, Rob. Yeah, and to you. And both of us are obviously part of the LGBTQI plus community. Yes. Um, and we've also spoken to numerous guests on our podcast, Talk Art, um, over the years who are queer as well, which has been a really fascinating journey for us because I think we've learned a lot about ourselves mm-hmm. throughout our lives from our teenage years onwards. Um, I think we've often felt a real solidarity and connection to great artists And the National Portrait Gallery collection has many amazing photographs and portraits and paintings by queer, gay, LGBTQI plus uh, artists. So I'm really excited today to chat about some of those. uh, Same, same. But we streamlined streamlined four down, which are pretty... well-known, but really great to talk about and go a bit more in depth with. Because um, as you were saying, yes, there are a lot of queer artists that have contributed to National Portrait Gallery, but a lot of queer people have also sat 
four portraits that are in the National Portrait Gallery. So there is a massive broad stretch. But today we're going to concentrate on four artists that we really connected to and love. And uh, I guess we should probably start with Maggie Hambling, who no. I think I think is just we both think he's just a powerhouse. What a personality. Like uh, the art, of course, phenomenal. But just as a personality, just as a force of nature, Maggie Hambling is incredibly um, forthright and uh, solid and proud, proudly queer, proudly, like everything she does, she does with such um, uh, an authority and such a confidence which I absolutely love. But we were looking at a photo, uh, well, not a, a painting that was done by Maggie, which is called Maggie Hambling, by Maggie Hambling, uh, from 1977 to 78, it took her to paint that. Do you know that painting, Rob? I love that painting. And it's actually, I think, one of my favourite works by her, because I really like the composition with all the interior kind of objects. And it becomes this kind of portrait made up of many different elements. Yeah. And it's quite dreamlike. And you've definitely got that element of her expressive kind of painterly vision because she does have a very unique, you know, way of making paintings that I don't think many artists have. It's like a very Maggie Hambling look. Yeah. But that work has references to kind of more traditional portraiture and even still life kind of interior domestic scenes. But with her kind of the way that the, the objects will often kind of start to merge or become quite fluid and quite kind of, you know, melting almost in the image. And I love that about, about her imagery. I always think that sometimes your objects, the things you own, can kind of tell you who you are. If they're gifts from people, for example, it kind of tells you what personality outwardly people think you have, but also it defines you. And these objects are also seem very personal to her narrative. And I don't know if you realise, but she's painted herself with three arms. Yes. She feels like she has to contain everything and it doesn't feel like she's got enough arms but the, her main priorities are her paintbrush her cigarettes and her booze she yeah. loves her drink her cigarettes and her paintbrush obviously they're the three driving forces in her life so she's given herself three arms to contain those but what's really exciting about this painting is that there is a queer element in there and there is uh, a quote which i found where she says that so it's a very queer element but you'll see the teapot that's floating through the ceramic teapot. And then in the bottom right-hand corner, there's this kind of essence of someone. Like, like it looks like the, the figure of a female from behind or the side, like a profile. But she says that spiritually, she's in love with the person who made the teapot for her. But physically, she's in love with the person whose persona we just glimpse in the bottom right-hand corner. So this, it's coded and loaded. And I love that about it because as an audience, you don't know that you're aware that you are actually consuming uh, a queer, authentic life being lived. And that's and it's like through these messages, you know, 1977, 78 was still early days, really, for, you know, queer lib, for like acceptance, like all the laws and everything in, in, in our part of the world. And this feels like a really beautiful way of her kind of signaling uh, to her community and signaling her own interior. 
Yeah, definitely. And there's also other works in the National Portrait Gallery collection by Handling. There's an amazing portrait of Dorothy Hodgkin. And in that one, you see like four or five hands. Um, she's kind of at a, at a desk yeah. and uh, she's kind of writing and, and you know, reading on, and, and sort of working at her desk amongst all these kind of like bookshelves. And, you know, it's a really lovely interior scene. I was really inspired by that sense of movement and kind of the humanity of somebody because often a painting or a portrait like a photograph can often sort of distill somebody into a very kind of single moment but what I like about Hamling's paintings is you feel like you're there it's very cinematic you feel like the individual's actually like in motion in front of you alive and vibrant and vital yeah. and yeah and I really liked like what you were saying earlier like the cigarettes and the wine and that kind of sense of spirit there's a really amazing photograph of Hambling in the collection as well, where you see her kind of very strongly looking to the lens of the camera and just holding holding a glass of wine as if to say, yes, like, this There's is... Not, about that, it feels like, yes, she's, she's looking to the camera, but it feels like she's wearing, wearing, even though her clothes is like a blouse and a softer cut suit jacket, it feels very masculine in her pose. She feels very yeah. kind of proudly standing there. But what you'll notice is this glass. It feels very Hitchcockian because behind her, the glass has been magnified to this huge glass. So in her hand, it looks small and dainty. But in reality, I think what it's projecting is the fact of how much she loves her wine and how important it is to her. And it has this shadow. But that was photographed in 1988, which I found yeah. quite expiring about that year is the same time that Damien Hirst had organised the freeze exhibition that was mm. happening. It was the same year. So you've got this kind of narrative going on of the young contemporary artists just kind of fertilising. And then this artist that's been there, uh, this the language she's created has been there through art history for this period in British art history and standing there very proudly like, I'm here, what are you going to bring to me? And you know just around the corner that that new movement of art's happening. I think Hambling for me always represented this real strength of character that was incredibly inspiring. Like it's a message that she doesn't necessarily explicitly shout out, but just by the way she looks into the lens and the way that she dresses and the way that she holds herself as a kind of artistic persona, reeks of kind of like self-confidence, this message of kind of be yourself, no matter, you know, if the world doesn't agree with you, it's okay to be you. And I think that's such a powerful message. And it's definitely one that's shared with some of the other artists we're going to talk about today as well. Absolutely. Do you know how many uh, portraits Maggie Hambling is sitting in, in the National Portrait Collection? No, how many? 15. And do you know how many portraits she has contributed to the National Portrait Gallery? No. 13. So oh, I've got I've got these I've got these statistics as we go throughout this uh, chat. So that's quite an interesting. You're such a geek, Russ. I love that about you. Oh, I'm a complete geek. Um, so shall we go on to um, Howard Hodgkin? Yeah. Can I say one more thing quickly about Hambling? Yeah. One of those works you mentioned in the collection, one of those thirteen actually made by her, is of a talk art guest, uh, Stephen Fry. Yes. And I love this. It's like a charcoal kind of drawing. And I think she proposed a number of different works and they chose that one. And the reason I love that one is the bow tie in it looks like two people talking. So it's almost like some kind of representation of like who Stephen Fry is as like a performer and an actor. It, the whole kind of embodiment of that. Conversationalist, isn't it? He's a conversationalist, isn't he, yes. I guess? And she's kind of enhancing that. But it feels very typically Maggie Hambling. It's like that's her line and you can recognise it. And it's kind of, it's very caricatured. But I know that Stephen uh, loves it. And uh, it's a really good um, 
energy that she's captured of him in a simple line drawing. And there's a side to Stephen as well, like as a kind of LGBTQ plus kind of hero. Absolutely. I think, I think Stephen's so, uh, what I love about him is the way that he openly talks about his mental health and like feeling sad and also the kind of intense, geeky kind of knowledge and the way he reads books and loves words. And I think that portrait of him really sums up the multifaceted kind of emotional complex dimension within him because he's so many different kind of elements and he's such a unique human and I think that should be celebrated. Amazing. Right, let's go on to Howard Hodgkin. How many portraits has Howard painted that's in the MPG? I'm going to guess. How many pictures of him? How many has he made? How many has he made? Maybe seven? Oh, no, sorry. No, sorry. How many many portraits are there of Howard Hodgkin in the National Portrait Gallery? I would say there's seven or eight. Fifteen. Wow, really? And how many has he actually painted? Maybe drawn? six, because I think it's quite hard to come by his work. One. One, right. Because yeah. I guess they have... What's amazing about Howard Hodgkin is he's very abstracted, but they are the essence of emotion, of feelings. So they are these colour fields that are explaining the interior uh, dialogue of someone through abstraction. So although there might not be a physical personification of someone, they are really making up what it is to be human. They are He's pushing out on there an absolute identity and a personality through these colour fields. Yeah, and I think what's special about Hodgkin is this kind of, you can actually see it in the photograph of him that's in the collection at the National Portrait Gallery. He had this kind of like strength of character, but he also had a kind of shyness and like a quite a private world. Um, I remember when Carl, who I worked with, uh, he made some prints with him. And I know that when he went to the studio, Howard used to um, invite people into the studio, but unlike many other artists where you like get to see all the work they're working on, he would turn all the canvases facing the wall um, and all you'd see is the back of the canvas. So he wouldn't actually let you see anything. And then if you were going to meet him about a project, he would bring out the single work that you were collaborating on and show you that one piece. So he was very private and kind of, it's not secretive as such, but I think he really respected his privacy. And um, it was very special to kind of protect that interior world and like, not just to kind of constantly be, you know, letting people into it. So it's quite an interesting thing. Yeah, I feel like that is comes from his you know, what happened in his life, the choice he made at an early age, he always knew he was gay, but again, it was at a time when it was less accepting societally, but also of oneself. And he then got married to a woman and has two children that are still uh, around and had this life with a woman. And I'm sure it was very incredibly happy and they had a nice time, but he always knew in himself that he wasn't being authentic to himself and he was being dutiful to what the social contract was of the time. So I feel like, when he was able to come out, like when he died, he had a lover of 20 years he'd lived with. So he'd had this real gay, authentic lived life. But I feel like it was even more precious to him because the time that he wanted to have experienced that, he probably, well, he couldn't because he he had engaged, he was married and he was loyal to his wife in a heterosexual relationship. But it feels like the, the portraits that were made during that time are really telling of his kind of psycho uh, somatic uh emotions and they would channel out like there was a work in 1977 called red man uh, called um jealousy and it's like this coiled anger of like this just round and round again and you just feel like that's like a lot of this was his emotions coming out or his kind of what he wanted to do so badly but couldn't um 
And actually that portrait of him, there's a photograph of him, a black and white bromide print that was taken in 1970 and it's by Edward Lucy Smith. And I think in that one, you really get that sense of all of that narrative you're discussing there and that kind of, he looks quite brooding. And and behind him, there's a painting, like, you know, leaned up against the wall. But I love that kind of intensity he had in his stare. And it's so wonderful to have this kind of archive of photography that's, uh, you know, parallel to the actual artwork he made. And in the art that he made, like his paintings, I've always loved them because of this sense of memory and those kind of very intimate moments, a bit like you're talking about with jealousy there. But if you think of like loving somebody, it's not just the actual, you know, you don't always remember their face. You might remember a smell or a touch or the light coming in through the window. And I really think his paintings captured that. And there was a really great show at the National Portrait Gallery a number of years ago, which were, it was a portraits show and it was called Absent Friends. And I remember going to it thinking like, but hang on a minute, Howard Hodgkin makes abstract paintings. Like how are these portraits? And through that exhibition, I really began to understand that through color and, you know, gesture and, you know, putting your finger into paint and applying it to a canvas or a frame, because he often painted onto the frames, that can be a portrait of somebody. Like all of those elements can sum up your experience of loving someone or being a friend of someone or companionship. And what I like about him is that as a queer artist, as a gay artist, it, it, it's it's kind of using these different ways of representation. So it's not just the figurative idea or a kind of literal um, exploration of, of a human being. It's actually this kind of wider, you know, more about kind of those personal intimate moments. Essence. It's the essence, essence of yes. someone. And I've got to say that that photograph, he looks incredibly handsome. I know. And right? I like the fact that we only see a section of the painting, but my probably my projection onto it is I feel like that painting that's specifically been chosen for that portrait is loaded with uh, messaging, is loaded with things that is very personal to him that we may never know, but thoughts and feelings, people, a single person, who knows, someone he had a crush on, in love with, I don't know. But I, I like the idea that this painting's there and you'll never know the crypticness of why it's been placed there and why he chose that specific one. But I like the idea that it is telling us something without realising. Yeah. I also love the paintings because they kind of make me feel about an imprint or a kind of a a memory, which I said before, but it's also this kind of, um, think of the word, hang on. It's almost like if you get up in the morning and you've been in bed together and there's like an imprint of someone's head in a pillow. Like that's, it's those kind of moments that his paintings really recall for me and sort of bring up these really like private, intimate times. Intimacy. And apparently he was uh, a nightmare to interview because he didn't like to talk about any of his work. So in reality, I was thinking I would love to have interviewed Howard Hodgkin for Talk Art, but it feels like that would never have happened anyway. There's a really amazing amazing documentary about him where they travelled to India with him because he was really inspired by the colours and the culture and like pigments and the food and all of the kind of Indian culture. And loads of it is just him being filmed looking. And that idea of looking was so important to him. And he would absorb all of the kind of experiences around him without a notepad, without anything written down, no no camera. It was all just his brain remembering. And then he'd go back and they'd show him in the studio in England, painting these paintings that become like exact kind of memories of that, of that looking, that intense stare. And I love that. I think it's amazing. Wow. 
Amazing. Howard Hodgkin, legend. Right, we're going to go on to now someone that we both know and love, Isaac Julian. Yeah, I love Isaac. So how many portraits are in the collection? Oh, God, you and your numbers. Um, Gosh. I don't know, maybe four? Three. Very good. Very close. Very close. You should get a prize for that. (laughs) Should. I'll give you a portrait prize. Um, So... (laughs) So there is there is three photographs there, and the first one that we were looking at was from 1993. And in this one, I think he's, he's a lot younger, but he looks very cheeky. He's kind of yeah. staring a bit up, and I feel like there is a, a tw- the twinkle that when you meet Isaac, you you get this twinkle. He's very cheeky. He, I think he's got a great sense of humour. He likes to laugh. He likes to gossip, I think. Maybe that's me gossiping, saying he wants to gossip. But my, my feeling on his feels like he likes to gossip. And that picture really sums up this kind of cheeky um, kind of queerness that he's got that I really embrace. It's also by, it's by an artist called Robert Taylor, a photographer called Robert Taylor. Um, and there's something about that era, like the way it's black and white, it kind of really brings to mind the whole kind of um, like, you know, even things like in the mainstream culture at the time, like Madonna's Vogue video, that kind of like black and white, you know, classic kind of Hollywood shot or something and he's got a real mischievous kind of look and spark and light in his eyes that it's such a simple photo but it really captures so much of who he is I think it's a really impressive um impressive photo yep there's a second one is from 2002 which is lit from one side where he's a bit more mature and he's very uh I think he's quite sexy in this one I think he's quite brooding and knowing and I think he's on a really good trajectory and knows himself more and the work and what the work is saying. And I like that confidence that's in that one. And there's a great uh, photo of him in front of two of his his works, taken by Horace Ove, who's a complete legend. Yeah. Um, well, he's got a Guinness World Record for being the first black British filmmaker to direct a feature-length film, which is called yeah. Pression, Horace Ove. And that, yeah. was painted, that was photographed in front of a series uh, that Isaac did called Baltimore, which was uh, three screens that played the same shot from different angles of this movie that was set in Baltimore and the three institutions in Baltimore shared the show because Isaac predominantly makes work for museums, for institutions, for galleries. Uh, So whenever he creates a body of work, it's specifically for uh, an institutional space. Yeah, and actually I really like his approach to making work because again, I think it's, very complex and it, it, he uses like a huge video screens, you know, film, photography, all these different elements. Sound is really important. And, and I, yeah, I just think he's a really important person and there's a kind of tenderness in his work. And I really loved the, um, the early work that was his breakthrough kind of piece about the Harlem Renaissance and um, Langston Hughes and like... Looking for, looking for Langston, that was called. Cool. But you know what is super gay about this? Obviously it was about a guy who was... Um, secretly gay at the time and used a lot of coding that he borrowed from Walt Whitman where uh, he would uh, appropriate the the initials of someone's name with numbers to kind of cryptically put them in which Walt Whitman took which then which what he got from Walt Whitman which then David Hockney also used that in his earlier paintings he used this kind of coding this this coding that that queer people could use to hide their attractions. But looking for Langston was the inspiration for which pop star's music video, Rob, which is super gay. God, um, trying to think, is it George Michael? 
Mm-mm. Close, kind of, same period, obviously. I thought maybe it would be outside or something. Um, who else? Pet Shop Boys? No. Uh, they're all my heroes. Um, Madonna? Yeah, hero. Although Madonna, I guess she wasn't queer herself. It was Madonna. Was it Madonna? It was for Vogue. Oh, for, for Vogue, yeah. Like, the way that, that that look of a Langston was shot, David Fincher saw that and Madonna saw that. And then for the music video for Vogue, which is gay history, queer yeah. history, changed the game. That was all inspired by the way that Isaac Julian shot that movie, Looking for Langston. And also Madonna's dancers, they came out of that whole um, kind of ballroom New York club scene. And, um, you know, they were actually part of the Paris is Burning film. And I know that was a big influence on Madonna as well. That, that I think Will she even went down to some of the clubs at that time. Yeah, but yeah. that's interesting because that's what I'm saying about that photo that's in the National Portrait Gallery collection is because um, there's something about like film noir and kind of like this really like elevated, dreamy, staged perfection or something. You know what I mean? Like the lighting and the staging of these photos and that Madonna video, actually, it, it, it's so kind of like soft lighting and it's really Hollywood kind of glamour, yeah. but, you know, taken to the kind of underground club scene. It's such a brilliant combination of elements. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yeah, totally. So I I think he's just phenomenal and really an amazing talent and what an incredible uh, figure of queer history. But what's, what's I find kind of really kind of meta now that I love is that Isaac Julian made a lot of work about overlooked uh, queer black icons. And he has now become not overlooked, but himself a queer black icon. And through making the work where he brings these people to light, he has also established himself as a really important voice uh, and an advocate for uh, a huge community. So you know what else? It's like the legacy of Isaac Julian's work, I think is so key because right now there's a whole new movement of really talented black artists across like different disciplines. So whether it be like filmmakers, uh, music, uh, art, you know, photography. And I think so many of the people that we've spoken to cite him as an influence. There's something about the kind of, immersive ambition of mm. the thematic scale of it um, mm. that's inspired a whole new generation. And, and a lot of the work you're seeing now is a hundred percent influenced yeah. you know, by what, what Isaac has kind of given people permission to well, go he, out and do in a way. Yeah. Well, what he's done is he's broke down barriers between all the art practices mm. and that's what you completely channels and forges ahead. And that's inspiring to younger artists when it feels like you're told to stay in your lane. 
Whereas Isaac's saying like, no, cross all the lanes and make the best story you can and make it authentic and true. Uh, so I think, I think we love, isn't it? It's all like breaking down boundaries between disciplines and also this idea of like high and low and like, you know, it was maybe like a TV presenter in the 80s is just as important as someone who's got a show at the Royal Academy. It's like, it's really important to like listen to all different people's uh, experiences with art and how it can transform all of our lives in different ways. I think with art, it's what we're trying to do is break down the hierarchy. No, no, no art practice, no artist, no someone who's into art is any important than anyone else. It's all about artists for everyone and everyone getting uh, something from it or making it or being in it. And uh, that feels really exciting. Great. Right. Final guest is... I love this. Final guest. <laughs> final guest. <laughs> our final guest is the legend, our hero, our biggest hero, David Hockney. Uh, how many... Uh, a hero, though, Russ. He's also become a friend of yours lately. Yeah. Yeah. We've, uh, we've been emailing a bit, but that's exciting. Uh, anyway, so how many portraits has he sat for in the National Portrait Gallery? I bet you there's loads of David Hockney because the great thing about Hockney is he was actually supported by institutions really early on. Mm -hmm. And I think he was one of the people, I sometimes see Hockney as a kind of Trojan horse somehow. It's like he somehow took queer politics, gay kind of agenda into the mainstream. Yes. So kind of effortlessly and geniusly, like people sort of just accepted what he was doing much faster than other eyes. Um, so I reckon there's probably like 17 pictures of him in the collection. 49, 49 he sat Nine. for. Yes, and I'm trying to find the link now to find how many he's made and I've completely lost it. Have you got that link, Rob? I'm sure I can find it. Or just look on the MPG page for Hockney and how many he's actually contributed. So Hockney has sat himself for 49 portraits and he has contributed 14 portraits that are now part of the National Portrait Gallery collection. Isn't that amazing? It's so amazing and so brilliant. The thing about Hockney is I'm not surprised there's like 49 portraits, photographs of him because he was such a fascinating persona. Like uh, he's pretty much up there with like... I don't know, you think of all the great artist personas like Andy Warhol, but even people like Frida Kahlo, who kind of, you know, really took care about the way they present themselves and the way that they would choose clothes to kind of express their interior worlds. And, you know, even down to like the fine details, like his glasses, like the shape of his glasses. There's an amazing photo, like a black and white photo of him looking through this big magnifying glass. Um, it's by G uh, Godfrey Argent from 1969. And again, you've got that concept of like looking, you know, mm. he's obviously looking at a painting or something with this huge magnifying glass. But And also his hair and like his knitwear. I'm obsessed with his knitwear. He's like my fashion hero. Like even this jumper I'm wearing today, I probably would never have bought if I hadn't been obsessed with David Hockney when I was a kid. <laughs> I love the fact that these there's there's a few black and white photographs. There's one from 1977, one from 1969, and they're really fun. He's so cheeky, and he was making work that was outwardly uh, queer at the time, really proudly. Again, at another time in history when it was a lot harder to um, live an authentic life in that way. And they're so performative. He's yeah. so kind of ja he's jaunty and twinkly and cheeky, and so he seems so happy. You know, and and I think there's an amazing painting in there uh, from 1970. Oh, no, no, sorry, that's a photograph. I'll tell you about. Um, so there's a paint, a, a photograph in there from 1970 by Cecil Beaton. Yes, 
I love that one. It's just like, and that one, he has his glasses off. Yeah. And I think you don't really see Hockney with his glasses off a lot because they became, you know, they're his trademark. It's a bit like Alan Bennett. You never see Alan Bennett with his glasses off. I always see like they're from the same part of the world. They both wear these kind of spectacles. They're known for their uh, accents. And, you know, Alan Bennett, another queer absolute hero. And I feel like Hockney is a queer hero. But this image of him with his glasses off is really um, raw and tender because you're being... you're. I feel like he's really revealing a side of himself that we don't know because everything else I have seen in these photographs that we've been discussing feels very performative and he's in control of how we see him and how he works. The, the Cecil Beaton shoot, there's a number of different photos from that, that photo shoot. And um, there's one where Hockney's just been painting the work um, Mr. and Mrs. Clark and Percy, where you've got like the white cat sat on... Um, Mr. Clark's lap. Mm. And I remember that painting because Raven Smith, the um, cultural commentator and writer, he we interviewed him on Talk Art. And he was another person like us from a similar generation who, when we were kids, was like obsessed with the work of Hockney. And somehow Hockney kind of gave us all permission to feel like it was okay to be ourselves. But what I like about that photo of Hockney kind of, you see his back and he's wearing this kind of like Masoni style, very intensely knitted jumper. And it's really thoughtful and reflective and quite vulnerable actually, because he's got his hands, like he's sort of holding his hands behind his back. And it's a really unusual, captivating portrait. And I love that we have all these kind of documentation of these very private moments. So you get a sense of what, what it was like and the humanity behind Hockney. Because I think sometimes when an artist becomes so successful and iconic and the work is so good, you can kind of just put them up on this pedestal as if they're like these, these giants. But actually, you know, he was actually just sitting there with a paintbrush in the studio, you know, making all these works in a very private, intimate way. And I think Cecil Beaton had a real knack for capturing those, those kind of off-guard, touching, human oh. moments. I Hang on, Rocky. Sorry, Rocky's just barking. Rocky agrees. <laughs> Hang on, Rock. Shush. Shush, Rocky. I also like that in a lot of these images, you see David Hockney paired with one of his artworks. Yes. Like, And, and I, there's two sides to this. I love the fact that you now know the, what these artworks are and what collection they're in and what their history has been. And there he is freshly in the studio making them. But I also like the fact that he's painted alongside them because he doesn't want to separate himself from the artwork. He mm. is a personality. He was becoming famous. He was becoming well-known as the figure of David Hockney, recognisable. But he's also like, I am the artist, David Hockney. Do not separate me from my art. I really appreciate that. Yeah, and actually there's an amazing painting in the um, National Portrait Gallery collection um, called Self-Portrait with Charlie, and it's from 2005, so it's a more kind of recent work in a way. And he's actually stood there in the painting himself. He's standing there in front of a canvas, and you can kind of see the back of the canvas. And then he's got these two very big kind of um, yellow paintbrushes in his hand, and he's looking directly into, you know, what would be the camera. And you feel like you're getting this kind of behind the scenes experience of what it's like, you know, for him to be making the painting, but actually for them painted by himself. And it's depicting a guy called Charles, who I think is a friend of Hockney's. And he's an American um, author. Was Hockney's assistant. He was Hockney's art assistant in the 80s. Oh, was he? Charles Dennis? Yes. yes. Yeah, he's an author and an artist and it was his assistant. So this painting is like the original selfie. 
Uh, he's taken, yeah. you know, it's almost like there's an iPhone there just like held above him. But you think of that time in the 80s and uh, Charles is queer and David's queer. And you think, you know, that was a time in queer history where the community was decimated by AIDS and HIV. But you also think of the stories, the fun that them two must have had, the cheekiness they must have had, what life must have been like. And I think Hockney was probably living in LA at that time or was he living in the States? I don't know. But you just imagine the life lived and the stories that those two will have. And there's obviously a reason why he's why he's put Charlie in this portrait with him because Charlie's obviously, well, Charles, obviously, I'm making him like, I'm going shorthand with him. I don't know him, but it's called Charlie. But you know that Charles and him, there is something uh, genuine and important about this friendship, about yeah. this. And it's interesting because this painting is actually from 2005. And what it does is it shows the importance of friendships and queer friendships um, and also friendships with kind of, um, you know, even straight people, but how you can have that kind of like solidarity and, and like, you know, mutual understanding somehow and like strength from different communities. And I think this idea of friendships long term and how often sitters will reappear later in works and you get to see a kind of aging process, um, both of Hockney himself, but also of the people that sit for him. I love that kind of tender exchange of friendship. Um, you know, and that's been a big part of what I think talk art has taught me about me and you is our, our, our own kind of gay, queer um, friendship and the way that we kind of help each other to grow and to support each other as we get older. It's a really sweet thing. And also, I love, he's wearing this navy kind of dark blue shirt, and then he's got these bright red braces, um, you know, really like traditional ones, almost kind of like country style. But I love that kind of way that his style is so uh, All to him. about the fashion. All about the fashion. But in the, way, in the way that Maggie Hambling has coded her paintings as Howard Hodgkin, they're, they're an interior authentic life that's been channeled through them. Hockney is also an artist that throughout his whole career has relied on the codes that are personal to him to send a message out there subliminally to his community, but to everybody. So it went mainstream, but unbeknownst to people, they're witnessing a part of gay history. They're witnessing a queer narrative. They're witnessing a queer secret or story, and they're not privy to it. And I I love that about his work because it's very... um, uh, cheeky and very yeah. kind of you know what that is a theme you, you recently acted in a show written by Russell T Davis called Years and Years yeah. which had an amazing kind of queer storyline in it that you yourself were, were part of but uh, his most recent TV show that's just out at the moment um, It's a Sin I'm obsessed with because yes it shows the harshness and the the brutal reality of the HIV and AIDS um, epidemic and pandemic back um, back in the 70s, 80s. But it also shows that kind of sense of fun and the kind of joy that the friendships and the bonds and the, you know, um, the connection that all of that community had at that, that period of time. And I think that sense of joy and love and care for each other can often get lost in the kind of sadness and the trauma and the drama of, you know, the fact that so many people died. And often what gets remembered is the 
the kind of darkness and the kind of the sad trauma of it all. But what I think is important to remember is the human soul and this idea of like joy and celebration and connection and sexuality and fun and also braveness and boldness and attitude. And it really comes out in that TV series. I think it's really impressive. And that's definitely aligned with Hockney's work too. Yeah. So there's a, another portrait, which is an etching, which was part of an edition as a fundraiser for 1971 called Richard, Jim and Felix. And it feels very hippie. And yeah. I, looked, I went, these just look like hippies, but this is like 1971. So it's the end of the 60s going into the 70s. It's almost like kind of Joni Mitchell Woodstock, yes. like you know, nudity, like it's okay to be naked. Yeah, exactly. But what's the, the irony of that is that you've got these three nude men and they were three editors that worked on a magazine called Oz, which at the time was really trailblazing um you know uh political uh satire but also really allowing a dialogue about you know nudity about embracing you know drugs about like like smoking pot not i don't think they did the hard stuff but i think when it came to just that hippie mentality and a lot of people were very anti-hippie they hated hippies and that this magazine stood for something but what happened was is that they were sent to prison Finally, but they were put, there was a trial for obscenity laws because on the cover of one of the magazines, they were showing, I think it's themselves or someone else urinating against uh, a work of art by someone. And everyone was in uproar and there was this obscenity law that was being crossed and they were tried for it. So as a fundraiser, Hockney made this image of the three editors with their dicks out to raise funds for this obscenity law case that was being launched to to them, which I find really ironic. And again, shows you the cheekiness of Hockney. He's like, well, I'm going to make something obscene, but it's an artwork. And I am, as you said, the Trojan horse that's able to do this work and put it out there and it'd be seen as fine art. But I'm also really pushing obscenity. We're seeing nude men with their bits out and I'm making it in an edition. So there's going to be more than one and you can buy it, and the money from it is going to help these people with the obscenity law. I love that. And the thing about Hogney is he's so skilled. He's like the best draftsman ever. And the way that he draws and etches is like second to none. So also, they're they're just amazing portraits. You know, even outside of the whole social history and the political kind of content, they're actually just incredible portraits of human beings. And I think, you know, even now, it's really interesting, the resistance that so many people have to the human body when we all have one we all know what each other's bodies look like you know to an extent and it's like really shocking to me actually how so many people are kind of up in arms and can can be so you know shocked and offended by the human body that we we have that's who we are but yet yet I, i i find it fascinating i find it you know it is ridiculous in some ways but I find it fascinating that we all do there is still the ability to shock by the naked body and like we just interviewed a queer artist called um Robert Andy Coombs who's um paraplegic he's in a wheelchair and he makes photographs um using his mouth to actually like activate the camera and he spends ages thinking about the exact shot that he wants and you know when you think of him and there's this whole kind of like uproar and outrage about a lot of his imagery and his artwork when actually it's just a human body you know and I love him for that I love the way that he loves his own body and that he's you know happy to explore these themes which are still in you know the year we're living in now 2021 that, that they're still provocative it's yeah it's quite amazing that we still have the ability to shock just by our own bodies and it's like 2021 and like not since adam and eve have we been allowed to walk around 
with our bits out and not be like <gasps> it's like a terrible like an ex- like a, like a shocking thing but i think that's fascinating with art and especially queer art that there is so many stories still to be told there's so many queer stories and you're talking about robert andy coombs who's a disabled queer artist but from all communities whoever they are within all the subcultures of what it is to be queer there are so many narratives that are still missing from the gallery walls and need to be there and need to be represented because until you're represented on gallery walls until you're represented in culture it's easy to be overlooked and to be told you don't really exist yes and stories still need to be told so these these four artists we've talked about today are trailblazers for the queer story for showing an authentic queer life lived but there are still so many missing i know and actually that's also why I'm really grateful that we're able to do talk art because I feel like slowly we're getting to learn more about all these different narratives whether they be like you know from trans artists or you know so many different kinds of experiences and I also think you know liberation and um, human rights are going to continue to be a real concern and we have to make sure we protect you know the human rights and equal rights for for women and for queer people and you know for trans people it's a really important thing and you know you cannot get um kind of complacent about it you know thinking that oh of course we're all equal I think you have to keep these conversations in the forefront of culture and also I love that artists are able to document the now you know what's happening in society right now and to have those moments like you know Oz magazine or you know we can now look back and see that moment distilled in an artwork and it touches us you know I think it's a really important document Amazing. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure talking to you today, Rob, for Talk Art and the National Portrait Gallery. We hope that you go... Are there any portraits of you in the National Portrait Gallery? Yeah, there is actually. There is one uh, that is... We were in the the History Boys when we did a group shot when we were doing the History Boys play. We are all uh, with Alan Bennett, photographs, and I cannot remember the artist. I don't know if you can look it up. I've found it. Yeah, I've just found it. It's... um... It says Russell Tovey, Sitter, 1981. There you go. It's by Derry Moore, the 12th Earl of Drogda. So Derry Moore, what year was it? 2004 It's or 2004 and it's a bromide print and it's got you and James Corden and the whole cast. It's really cool, actually. It's a beautiful photograph. Yeah, so I have. I have been a sitter. Uh, <laughs> I am a sitter. in it as well. You've got like, you're doing like a side pose like that, cheeky. I'm, un- I'm unsure of my side pose, but that was that was photographed in 2004 by Derry Moore, and I remember being in one of the offices at the National Theatre on the top floor, and we all posed for that photograph, and that is now in the National Portrait Gallery with Alan Bennett, the queer legend icon. And well, I actually really like the National Portrait Gallery website as well, because every time we interview people, I often go on there and search, because it's a way of, like, finding out someone's kind of journey through life. Like when we interviewed Ian McKellen, I remember going on there and there were loads of amazing portraits of him through the ages. And there was an amazing one where he had like a really sexy kind of moustache. And I was like, oh my God, Ian was really attractive. I never sort of thought of him like that, but it's really, it's really funny. I love it. Yeah. I need to get a well, picture of you in there, babe. Yeah, well, I'm really happy I'm in there. But for everyone watching this, thank you so much for watching this. And please get onto National Portrait Gallery website and look at their collection and you'll be surprised at how many portraits there are of individuals, but how many portraits there are of incredibly powerful, queer, important voices throughout history. And uh, thank you very much for having us today. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, National Portrait Gallery, Talk Up Podcast, last <laughs> Bye, everyone.
You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.